0: Like so many Americans, when yet another black American was killed by the police on May 25th, I was outraged. But I didn't say anything outside of my family. I was paralyzed. I didn't know what to say. I knew I wanted to say something, but I didn't feel that my voice or my words would even mean anything. So I stayed silent. Again. And then I read this on Instagram. There is a fire burning in the bellies of millions across this country, a fire spurred by cries for equality. These are cries that have echoed throughout centuries. These are cries that have echoed throughout centuries of injustice and oppression when our ancestors screamed, fought, and died for freedom even chained together like cattle. In this episode, my friend Alexis Shepard and I address something that quite frankly should have been discussed a long time ago. Racism and how white teachers can do better at using their voices to do better. Because over the recent weeks, I've realized my own ignorance and privilege and am dedicated to having the hard conversations that I encourage burned-in teachers to have when things are at their hardest. Alexis and I have a candid, open conversation where she shares her story, how she feels we can all do better. And I had so many questions for her that she was more than willing to answer. This was recorded on Facebook Live on June 2nd after she and I started chatting on Instagram DMs and I asked her if we could make our conversation public because I know my teacher demographic. I know that many of the 81% of white female educators around this country feel like I felt and continue to feel and want to do better. So what you're going to hear was recorded on June 2nd, like I said, on my Facebook page um, at Burned in Teacher. So you can go to Facebook.com/slash burned in teacher to watch it live. But after this episode, there will be silence. There's not going to be outro music and no Burned In Teacher podcast episodes for the rest of the summer until August. This is because I want you to go to the show notes for this episode and you can find them at burnedinteacher.com. Click on podcast and find them attached to this episode 73 and educate yourself with the plethora of information that Alexis and I have for you there. Follow the people in the show notes. Get their resources. Listening isn't enough. You know that. I've told you that. You have to act and do something different if you want different results. And if we want different results in this country, we have to educate ourselves. And in this case, acting first starts with educating yourself and learning how not to just accept everyone no matter what their color is in an effort to not be racist. We have to be anti-racist. After our conversation, Alexis went to Instagram and summed up our conversation, and she ended it with this statement, and my friends, this is everything. Here's what she said. She said, black lives matter, and voices of privilege matter. My voice is amplified when your voice is heard. Now these are my words. Don't stay silent. Now our conversation did go on for quite a while. So you may want to listen to this in pieces, but it's, it really is, in all of its seriousness, a light conversation about very heavy things between two friends. And I welcome you to reach out to Alexis at The Afro Educator on Instagram. Um, the Facebook Live is also on her Facebook page. You can find her there at The Afro Educator. And reach out to us if you have any questions at all or you want to know how you can start. Um, and if that is in fact your question, what is my next step? Simply go to the show notes, choose a resource, read a book, find a podcast. I recommend a really great podcast episode that I listen to myself that has awakened me. And I know that this conversation will too. So as you go into your summer, let this ignite a fire of activism in you. And then take the time that you would have listened to this podcast to instead listen and learn how you can be anti-racist and use your teacher voice for true change in this country. Burn on, stay safe, do better. we're already, we were supposed to start at noon. We're a little bit behind, but I think that's okay. You know, people will join in here and whether or not you're joining, you know, live or watching this um, later. Um, If we've never met before, I'm Amber Harper and it is my pleasure to introduce to you my friend, Alexis Shepherd. Hi, Alexis. Hi,
1: how are you, Amber? How are y'all out there on Facebook live? I'm really thrilled to be here having this conversation. Um, Amber reached out a couple days ago and I know she's gonna share with you um, sort of how this idea for this conversation came about. Um, um, But just really hoping that um, this insight into this conversation can be transformative for um, whomever is listening now and whoever may listen in the
0: future. Absolutely, and hey Pat, good to meet you. All right, so um, full transparency, I just like the rest of the world um, saw what was happening and have seen what has happened not just over the past week and um, like many people that I know I was paralyzed and silenced and didn't know what to say which as I've been reading and researching is very common my reaction was not special or very different than many other white Americans and um, so And I told Alexis this in my DM, I said, I have stopped and started stories so many times, but I can't possibly fathom what to say. And um, I had reposted um, a post that you had created and I can't, I can't share it on my screen right now, but it it just spoke to me. And I thought, you know what? I, I want to repost this. I know Alexis, I respect you so much. You've been on the podcast before. And after I reposted it, um, it. I felt like I had the strength to then talk a little bit about, um, how, how I felt, but I know it's, it's not about me, but then you and I started chatting back and forth on DMs and I told you, I said, Alexis, what is so difficult for me is I grew up in a very small, very white town, went to school with white kids and, um, then became a teacher. And my only classmates who were black were adopted by white families. I've only had a handful of, um, a couple of, black students, and they were adopted by white families. And through all of this, and all of the reading and listening that I've been doing in the past few days, especially, I've realized how ignorant I am and how biased my my experiences have been, especially lately. Um, And so I said, I said, I, you know, I started asking you a couple of questions and um, we decided and and I asked you, I said, you know, we can't keep this conversation in these private DMs. So that's when I decided to ask you to come on and and have this conversation out in the open because it, it needs to happen. These candid conversations need to happen. And you so appropriately named it Color Your Perspective. And I wanna make sure that I'm being very clear here and that I am not looking for Alexis, and we've had this conversation, I'm not looking for Alexis to comfort me in my realization of my bias and ignorance, and I'm not looking for affirmation or pats on the back for admitting my biases. I just feel like we need to have this conversation out in the open, Um, because in the spirit of the Burned In Teacher podcast, and Burned In Teacher, I, I started it to open these hard conversations And, um, so Alexis, I'm so excited that you were willing to so gracefully come on here and, um, answer my questions. You know, I've shared my questions with you. And so tell us a little bit about, about you and, um, and, and what you'd like to talk about today as well. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So, um, I mean, you guys would have heard the premise of how this conversation came to be. And uh, I definitely have to have to shout out the fact that Amber really reached out and asked if I would mind making our conversation public. But more than that, um, you know, she asked me, what should we call this conversation? What are you comfortable talking about? How can I be um, as respectful as possible in this space while also still being raw and candid and open? Um, And so I think those are super important first steps in in having um, any conversation of this magnitude. Um, Just a a little bit about me. So I'm Alexis, uh, also the Afro educator online. And um, essentially the Afro educator, uh, I talked about this a little bit in my stories a couple of days ago, Afro really speaking to more of my heritage as an uh, African descendant, right? Um, And that being so important because my identity as an educator, I do take a lot of pride in being a black educator and um, also having uh, tons of black educators in my family, right? Because everything that I, um, every experience that I have in my classroom with my students as an educator is through the lens of a black person. And so that section of, you know, who I am and, and sort of my online brand is very important to me, but also the educator part, not just referencing academic education. But the this, this seeking of knowledge in general, and so you know when you reached out, I thought, this is perfect. This is exactly what I want to be able to use my platform to do is for us to share our experiences and our stories in a way that can be transformative, especially now that we have so many white people who are having you know these these realizations that okay, I haven't been actively racist but also acknowledging some of those biases and some of those things that maybe make you complicit in your contribution to racism. Um, So I thought this would honestly, when you reached out, be the perfect platform for us to talk and like you said, be honest. Um, For those of you that are watching, we are just having this conversation for the first time. And the only other uh, speaking that we've done was through DMs. And as soon as she proposed the idea of the conversation, we were like, okay, That's it as far as us talking, because we want y'all to experience our conversation real time and engage with it as well.
0: Yes, absolutely, 100%. And you and I, we did have a quick, oh, we lost sound, Alexis. Oh, did we? Okay. Maybe it's just on my end, I'm so sorry. I did not hear what you just said. Can you say that again? Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, great.
1: I was just saying that I felt like this would that uh this conversation is completely raw and honest, like you said, we did have um, a very short sort of preview conversation yesterday when we were talking and figuring out logistics, but just wanting everyone to know that for the most part what we're talking about here is I mean y'all are sitting in on a
0: conversation between the two of us, and we're really hoping to engage with y'all as well, okay. It sounds like people can hear us and and Alexis, just to i mean. We almost accidentally started having this conversation yesterday. We were like, we have to stop. (laughs) (laughs) And I apologize, Alexis, if I talk over you, there seems to be sometimes a delay and sometimes not a delay. So if I'm talking over you, I will try to keep my eye on the camera um, to make sure that you're not talking. So I'm going to apologize ahead of time for any of you listeners out there. I promise I'm not intentionally talking over, over Alexis. Um, So one of the main reasons that i felt like taking this conversation out of the dms and onto a live where people can listen to this and it will be on the podcast on monday is because i as a white middle class american woman am part of the 81 percent of teachers in america and I feel that you know, like I had said earlier, with my upbringing, I was brought up to accept everyone. I've had those conversations, and I even learned this morning when listening to a podcast by Shunta Grant um, that even you know, just being told you know, we don't pay attention to color. You know, everybody, you know, everybody is important, and we, we're nice to everybody. Even having those conversations is not is are not the conversations that we should be having with our children. But that's how I was brought up. And, you know, like I said, I was brought, brought up to be nice to everybody and accept everybody for who they are. But then as a, as a white teacher who taught mostly white students, and I did go to school with um, a high Hispanic population and then had Hispanic students in my classroom, um, I, I just have never had the, the chance to or the experiences that I have needed to make me not only not racist, but anti-racist. So I don't know exactly, Alexis, you know, where you'd like to start with, with that, with teaching me or telling me and the rest of the listeners out here, and listeners, please post your questions if you have them, and I will um, try to catch them and ask them as well. Um, but like I said, you know, or like you said, this is an organic conversation. So wherever you want to start and take this, just yeah. lay, it, lay it out there, lay it on me. So I feel like
1: we can't have, you know, the, the larger conversation about racism until we understand, I mean, fully understand the construct of race. And in our, <laughs> our public school system um, that I can directly speak to since, you know, I work in the public school setting, does a terrible job of explaining race to our children. And what I realized as an educator is that it's been relegated to just black and white Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, racist, the idea that white people are better than black people. It's not wrong. It's just extremely watered down. And it omits the psychology and the biology, okay, that was used to justify and perpetuate the idea of racism later. So I, um, you know, I'm constantly sort of looking for information on all kinds of different things. My mom calls me a, a Google scholar because my, like my hobbies are purveying the internet, you know, just like looking for information. Um, and I've always loved to read and acquire knowledge that way as well. Um, so anyway, when it comes to understanding race, and i within the last few years specifically, have done a lot of reading and research on this because I wanted to be able to convey accurate information to my students that was something different than the watered-down version that I had been given that I knew that other people were giving and that you see in textbooks because they also do a terrible job of informing our children about race. And so race is a social construct. but it didn't start with the transatlantic slave trade um and i'm I'm sort of a, a bit of an anglophile as well so the english have always been really hierarchical in terms of the way that their society is constructed and long 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 time ago was used to generalize like rank and specifically rank as it concerns um religious institutions so uh if any of you guys are familiar with the english monarchy you know queen of england according to that only god is above her right and so there are ranks you know you have bishops et cetera et cetera i don't know all of the details behind the ranks but you have ranks and race previously was used to sort of identify those different hierarchies in that that social structure so um you know that that has always existed in terms of just like separating and being able to classify who is who um, socially, especially in English society, just as like a a blanket. Um, But as far as race goes in America, ultimately what happened was there was a need to justify and to legitimize slavery because actually for the first uh it was for the first few decades of the transatlantic slave trade um while it was always horrific and brutal it certainly uh it really intensified over time um and what you had was you had a a decent number of people especially within that first 50 years who were really sort of morally opposed to slavery um because they felt like it was antithetical to their Christian values. So then what happened was you had people in positions of power who were like, okay, we've, we, we really gotta find a way to justify and you know, make this right for all of these moral opposers, you know, this moral opposition to this practice. And so in order to legitimize white power, what they did was they brought race, this idea of social classification, to, um, to the United States during the transatlantic slave trade. And what happened was there was this like idea of, of uh, the, hi- the hierarchy of creation. I can't exactly remember the name of it, but it's essentially this pyramid that says that, you know, these are your most basic organisms and it sort of, you know, goes in this triangle up to, you know, humans, angels, God. Mm-hmm. And so, what they did was they were able to, use, or not able to, but they used biology. Uh, there was a craniologist, I believe his name was Samuel Morton, who did studies on the skulls of uh, Africans and the skulls of white people and scientifically justified okay, the skulls of the white people tend to be larger. So that obviously means that they're smarter, which means that Africans are, you know, lower on the, 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 um, you know, creation hierarchy, and therefore, you know, it's right that we subject them to this. Mm -hmm. On top of that, because many of these people were also, uh, you know, Christians, they were, they felt that they were able to use that to justify this as a moral thing, and so, you know, the biology and the psychology of racism, or of race, excuse me, go hand in hand it's look at these physical attributes of these people that clearly says that they're not as smart because their skulls are smaller um you know on top of other things but then also because of that we're really doing them a favor this is all that they can do anyway there was also this idea that and and what we have to acknowledge and what i think is important too is that. And my dad says this, we were sold before we were bought. And so some of our ancestors were also slaves, not was not chattel slavery, but were slaves in um, Africa. And so even then, you know, there's this this rationalization that, well, they were heathens there. And, you know, by being slaves for us, we're, we're bringing them to know God. We're bringing them to know Christ and we're saving their souls. So there's this sort of like interwoven moral uh, justification on top of the biological justification of race that perpetuated this idea that it was okay to treat Black folks the way that they were treated. Um, I mean, so even the term race at this point, is null. Because we know that that's not a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that even, you know, in trying to, because what they were effectively trying to do was categorize, biologically categorize humans according to their common attributes. Mm -hmm. But even among black people, you see so much diversity, right? That we know that you can't do that. But that, that's effectively what, what the construct of race does, mm-hmm. uh, or at least what it was attempting to do. So, um, you know, thus is, is racism, this idea that, okay, you're categorized beneath me. Mm-hmm. So that justifies my, my treatment of you.
0: So what's interesting about what you just said is we have a couple of comments here. Uh, Jillian Lee, who I know really well. Hi, Jillian. She said, I agree about it being watered down. I say that because we really only talk about Black race during Black History Month. Um, I, I feel that they only use Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King. Yes, I love them too, but there were so many more that made a difference. Um, I'm sorry, that made a difference that's worth, worth talking about. And Jillian Lee, I don't know, you can't see the comments, can you? Yeah, I have, my, I have okay. my Facebook pulled up to the side, um, so, so I, can, yeah, I can see some of them. Okay, so um, what's interesting is that, you know, we've all been to high school, and the history that we learn about, about, you know, slavery ends, begins and ends there with the buying and selling of slaves, period. Right. Period. And then Abraham Lincoln comes along, and then it stopped. Well, it doesn't stop, but, you know, we all know right. Um. So, and we have Shannon said, I love how thorough Alexis is explaining this. So thank you. And I appreciate that too. Um, Elena says, Alexis, what state do you teach in? I'm in New York city, early childhood social studies does not offer nearly enough. That is a question that I had for you. Um, So go ahead and answer her question.
1: I am in upstate South Carolina. So if you're looking at a map of South Carolina, you know that we're like the shape of an upside down triangle. I am in the top Northwest corner.
0: So that was a question that I had that Elena uh, Alana I'm sorry Elena I I'm, I apologize if I'm saying your name wrong um is how do you how do you talk about this history or do you talk about this history and like I said earlier when I was listening to Shanta Grant's um episode of her podcast how do you talk to younger children, your children, your students. I taught first grade for several years. How do you talk to them about this? Or, I mean, I, obviously you have to, you know, pay attention to their age and, and understanding and things like that. What do you, how do you do that? You know, we're we're told not to, you know, just say, you know, everybody's the same skin color doesn't matter. We're, we're kind to everybody. What, what do we say? Right.
1: Well, um, So for, just for the the listeners and the the watchers. So my experience is I'm elementary certified, which in South Carolina is grades two through six. And so I've actually taught four years of second, um, three years of fourth. And then this is my first year in, uh, this is the end of my first year in sixth grade. So I definitely have experience in talking to younger kids about race. And I have always, in all of my eight years as a teacher, talk to even my youngest babies um, even my youngest students about race and generally it comes up during our community helpers unit when we're talking about you know people who have an impact in our society and we talk about firefighters and uh you know police officers and and postmen etc but then it also extends to people who have made social contributions and of course like she was mentioning mlk and rosa parks always come up Um, And I use those as segues into more specific topics. And I also use them as opportunities to um, sort of debunk some understandings that they may have already developed from when that's talked about earlier in school. So talking about the fact that, um, you know, while Rosa Parks was certainly heroic, that was very intentional. And there were people who had already done what she had done Mm -hmm. prior to what she did. People who were arrested and who, you know, didn't get the publicity. And so we talk about those people and how those people are heroes, even though those aren't the people we see amplified, um, you know, in textbooks and in media, etc. So um, we bring it up that way. And what I love about being a black educator is I'm able to use myself as an example. Um, the last time I taught second grade, we specifically talked about how just, you know, 50 years ago, because a lot of them have grandparents that are around that age or a little younger just 50 years ago I would not have been able to be in front of them in the capacity that I'm in now and that leads to a lot of questions and in my classroom that's something that I don't shy away from I allow them to ask those questions and generally my lessons are directed by their interests um, and by their curiosities I'll never forget I had a, a biracial student that year who um, I mean, was very dark compared to his mom. His mom was white. And he specifically asked me, "Well, what about, you know, what about me and my mom? You know, my mom's white, I'm biracial, what about me?" And I was able to have that conversation with him. Listen, you guys being out seen out in public, that wouldn't have been a thing and we were able to talk about that and it was interesting because that mom ended up circling back around and telling me later that she had never had that conversation with her son. Um, and so for me, it's uh, the instruction ends up being a lot less about Uh, me introducing the information, as soon as I put even a little bit of that info out there and a little bit of that truth out there, the questions come. Mm -hmm. You know, in second grade, when we talk about race, right? And I ask them what they know about it. And some of them are able to say, you know, it's black and white. But then as soon as I introduce that next level of how it doesn't exist, they're like, what? What do you mean? Because the only way that they've been trained to see differences is through that lens. And so having them, even at that young age, be able to understand that like, this is not really a thing. This was something that was created in order to make you think that there are, uh, you know, these uh, psychological and, and, and biological differences between us. And when you say that, because so, so many of them already have that ingrained, it just brings up all of these questions, right? It's like a little brain explosion. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that, and then, um, through literature, mm-hmm. um, and oftentimes I'll get a lot of questions. You know, I love, um, a classic, classic literature is Jacqueline Woodson's The Other Side. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if you've, if you've read that one, but that's I have a, read that book. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so, um, using texts like that as well, that's really an obvious one that speaks to, you know, Jim Crow era and segregation. Um, But using that and then using other texts that feature black protagonists, even outside of the context of segregation, because then I'm able to specifically um, address some of the bias, you know, even some of the biases that they have. Like you read a book that's about a black scientist and then you, you know, you sort of get these these questions and these comments that indicate that these kids don't expect that this scientist is going to be black or that this protagonist is going to be black. And then you're able to even address it in other ways outside of just specific conversations, um, you know, dedicated to race in the classroom. So I would say that I'm able to weave all of that throughout. And I think that the easiest way is through literature and using that literature to incite their curiosities because that then leads into, you know, so many other veins of conversation.
0: Mm -hmm. And are are you saying the comments that I'm seeing, um, Holly and Angie, thank you so much for, for sharing this. Um, children's librarians I know are really trying to use children's literature to do this outside of the curriculum to go deeper, but I know we need more guidance beyond diverse book book lists and I think that um, she touches on a really good question and Angie kind of piggybacks off of that, right because there are still issues with publish in the publishing world about the voices that get heard so do what we can but then stretch and try more here's the challenge I see is that and and maybe i'm maybe i'm I'm wrong in in my feet in my assumptions about this, but as, as a black teacher teaching about black history and having those conversations, as a white teacher who doesn't have that history and doesn't even fully know that history, how do you I mean, do you talk about it the same way or do you just simply, I mean, I was always okay with with telling my students if they asked a question, I don't know, let's find the answer you know, is it, is it as simple as that? Does it just begin and end there with, with saying, I don't know, I will find out, or, you know, obviously being intentional with the books that you read. um, Am am I making sense in my question? Yeah, no,
1: absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Um, Yeah. I, I think that's, that's really key. If you don't know,
1: being committed to finding out, but then also committing to to that idea that you're going to find out because you know sometimes we'll tell kids oh i'm not sure i'll look it up but then even taking the time there to look for it and to do a little bit of mini research together or what have you because there are things that you know even in terms of black history right because i i mean i am a, a black woman you know in america living the black experience i do not proclaim to be you know, an an expert on on everyone's experience as a black person in America. I can just speak to my, you know, my own experience, but, um, yeah, it's okay to say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think what it's about is, is that dedication and that commitment that you have to finding out and then delivering that information and seeing how you can press even deeper. So then you find out and, Uh, Like, let's say you, you know, you do like a a think aloud or a search, you know, with with the kids and you see that information and that information causes a question for you. Letting your kids hear that question as a think aloud and thinking through that is important because then you can even use that as a way to uh, promote your students, um, you know, desires to research and look for that information Mm -hmm. um it's also a great opportunity to talk about the fact that and i i'm very upfront with my students um because i pretty much create my own resources when it comes to uh teaching about uh blacks in america and i specifically tell them because your textbook doesn't give you accurate information on this they gloss over a lot of the important parts and i want you to know x because I'm hoping that you're going to be able to affect change when you get to a place where you can make more, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Substantial decisions. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I tell my, st- because I want you to be informed and I want you to have perspective. So when they see you seek perspective, I think it only encourages and prompts them to seek perspective as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that anybody is expecting any of our white educators to automatically know because you're not living the experience. But part of the issue has been that nobody has been seeking the knowledge, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: right? You just know what you hear on TV or maybe what a Black friend mentions here and there, but there's not an intentionality behind looking for and engaging with people who are living this experience or who, you know, may be able to speak at a deeper level
0: to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. So what about in my, in my case, um, or many, you know, there are teachers out there who ha- who don't have black students in their class. Would you recommend the same type of conversations or the same? I mean, is it, I mean, obviously, the the conversation might go in into a different direction, um, but what would you say to to a teacher who is white and has white students and teaches in a white neighborhood? Um, because this is where we can plant a lot of important right. seeds. Um, right. But what yeah. what would be appropriate? Because here's the thing that I will come back to is that when we are, when we don't know what to say, we don't say anything. And that's where this conversation started. So when white teachers don't know what to say, they don't say anything. And you think that you're not being racist because you're not saying negative things about people of color but by saying nothing and by just saying well even just saying well that's not that's not even what what's happening in this history book is not true and then if it just gets left at that then it's just you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. um, what what do we do in these instances where we don't we don't know where to go because it's uncomfortable or right. you know what do you do yeah. you get on facebook live and you talk right. to it right i <laughs> mean honestly right you have to sit in
1: you have to sit in that discomfort because I mean, at that point, in my opinion, as an educator, it is your responsibility to point out the fact that that classroom environment or that that neighborhood is homogenous, right? To me, those are instances that are uh, the most ripe for those kinds of conversations.
0: Mm-hmm. It's important
1: to point it out because the thing is, in most cases, it's not just going to be you sitting with us with that discomfort. Those students are going to be sitting with that discomfort as well and you can actually use that discomfort to spurn the conversation
0: mm-hmm.
1: right mm-hmm. because i i'm willing to bet that if you were to say that in front of, of, of a group of students it's gonna get silent mm-hmm. and you can use that silence if it were me and i've i mean i'm in a um, a mostly white district, but the school that I currently teach at has the highest, you know, population of black students in the, you know, in the area. Um, but even so still the majority of my classes are white. Mm-hmm. And those are conversations that I, you know, and again, because I'm there, um, you know, it's, it's a little different, right? Because I'm not sitting with the discomfort of, of not knowing what to say or how to address it, but you got to call it out.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you see, or have you ever been in a situation yourself, or do you know of anybody um, who has been put in a situation where, and I, and I, I told you I was going to ask you this, <laughs> um, where people have been accidentally racist to you, where they have said something to you, or around you, or about maybe a black student or their family, you know, something along those lines. Um, because I'm quite sure after reading and listening to what I've been reading and listening to that I have, if not had the thought, you know, if not have said something outrightly, that I have thought something that has been racist without even knowing it. Right, right. So
1: <laughs> the answer is yes. And I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm assuming that when you say accidentally racist, what you mean is you have said something that, um, had maybe some discriminatory undertones but the intent to the intent was not there the bad intent was not there is that what you're okay yeah so you say that and instantly what comes to my mind are microaggressions um which are those implicit biases that we have based on our past experiences our past you know education our past influences and it's a presumption about you know your level of intelligence or who you are based on that, that previous knowledge and that experience. But it's always tinged with some ideal of, you know, racism or discrimination. Right. So Mm -hmm. I'll I'll give you some common ones that I've received. And my responses after that to those. Yes. Um, I've been asked quite a few times, what are you? Uh, My brother was actually with me uh, maybe about, 15 years ago, when a lady in a restaurant walked up to me and asked me what, what are you? And I said, I'm black. And she said, no, I mean, what are you? And I said, I'm black. And she just kept back. No, no, I'm like, I know you're black, but like, what, what, like, what else are you? Right. Um, Which insinuates that I I can't be black because black is not beautiful. I've got to be mixed with something else. You know, I I can't just, just be black. I've been asked, I've, I mean, my entire life I've been called white. Um, that's a, a very common thing. My brother and I both, uh, my dad as well, we've been called the whitest black people that um, they know because it, again, assumes that black is not intelligent, right? That's that's like the, the undertone of that. Um, you're so articulate. That's a very common one for black professionals. And while the intent may not be bad, what that insinuates is that black people are not
0: normally articulate. Right. And I get that so
1: much. You're so articulate. You're so
0: articulate. Okay. I'm going to stop you there. Cause I know <laughs> I've said that to you. I know, <laughs> but I want to, I want to back that up and I'm not going to get like defensive about it, but I do not consider myself to be very articulate because when I get excited or I get happy, uh, hyperactive and it can't get my words out right. And I've said this to before and, you know, I think, you know, Gretchen Bridgers, I think she was watching here a minute ago. I have said the same thing to her and she's white. <laughs> so I just, it's in those instances where it's, we're, we're meaning. I would say that right. to any, to anybody who I feel gets their ideas and they're just so calm and well spoken right. and, yes.
1: You know, but it's about
0: having the awareness of uh, because
1: I mean I have a friend that actually says that to me constantly, and because she feels like that, she feels like, oh my gosh, is every time you say something, I just feel like you say it in a way that, you know, really makes sense that I understand. And you know, because I know her and because I know you, I understand what you guys mean when you say that. But when you're in professional settings with people who maybe don't know you or her hearing you speak for the first time, mm-hmm. understanding that. Where that comes from and where that originates is this place of like, wow, she's she, she's, she's really she's really got it going on with the words, you know. Um, but no, I no, I absolutely understand that, and I, I take that as a as a pure compliment from from you and from her. But unfortunately, that doesn't always come from that place of. I just feel like I you know blubber all over myself when I talk. It comes from this idea of. You know, black people aren't generally articulate. So when you see one, you're like, Ooh, you know, um, and so that and then names, right? So, and I think a lot of us just in education in general are guilty of this, but we know that a lot of our black students tend to have more the, you know, the ethnic names, uh, the creative names, the names that are sometimes difficult to pronounce, the names that you don't see uh, constantly, but there are microaggressions that come with that. Um, and, and there's that racism underneath that that comes with that as well. So to me, what I have done in the past when I haven't been so sure about someone's intentions or when I feel like someone's taking a dig is just this question, what do you mean by that? Mm. Because as soon as you say that, one of two things happen. Either people start fumbling all over themselves, trying to explain why they didn't mean what they meant. Or they're silent, and then that's my opportunity to say. Because when you said that, I felt like what you were really saying was that I can't be pretty, or I can't, or because I'm black, it's not reason. You know, it's it's not the norm for me to be intelligent, or it's not, um, you know, the norm for me to wear certain clothing or whatever. You know, it's, it's it's even things like that down to a brand or a style that I might wear that's considered.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember, um, being in school and like I said, I went to school and and taught in the same school that I graduated from for several years. Um, and we had a high Hispanic population and I remember students calling other students. You're saying you're acting white. So, and that is within their own, that's within their own race. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you, as a teacher, when you hear that? Because I heard it as a teacher. And again, what did I do? Nothing. I said nothing. What do you say in instances like that? You know, when you hear this, when you hear this racism within either, you know, either, you know, white on black or, or, you know, his, Hispanic, uh, you know, when you hear this language, what do you, what do you suggest that we do? I mean, again, you stop right then and
1: you ask that question. What do you mean do you when you, you say that? that? Right. What, what do, you, what do you, mean when you say that? So, and you, you pose that question and then ask it again a little differently. So what do you mean when you say that? So does that mean that if you're black, you can't use this word? If you're black, then you can't use, you know, you can't articulate ours a certain way. If you're Hispanic, does that mean? I mean, what what makes? And then continue to probe. So what makes, you know, Polo Ralph Lauren white? So does that mean that it's not good enough for you? Does it mean that you? I mean, what? So again, pro because ultimately what happens is you end up getting to the root of that bias, and it's either that somebody is racist or that somebody has experienced racism to a degree that they feel un worthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it, to me, it all starts with that question. What do you mean by that? So X can't be black? Or this? So why why can't so and so say this word? Well, what like when you because when you ask that, generally, they have not been asked that before, right. What they're right. saying is I've seen a lot of white people do this. And if white people are doing it, it makes it and that's when you really start to uncover things that you can actually address but you've also got to be willing to sit with that discomfort as a white person who was addressing uh you know a black or or in your case Hispanic student coming from that place where you don't have that experience and it's okay for you to um for you to to be in that and to be transparent with that about your students listen I'm not, you know, I I don't understand your experience. I'm not black. I'm not Hispanic,
0: but also th- this is what I do know. Mm-hmm. I uh, like how you just brought that up. I mean, just showing empathy, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know exactly how that feels, but I do know that this, this is not okay. You know, we need to talk about this. Um, so what did you have something else too? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, 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 no I'm you. sorry. I'm actually looking. I'm I know, I was looking to too. Me. We've had a lot of comments. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we've had a lot of comments come in. Paula said, oh, who wow, we've had a lot of comments. Okay. Um someone mentioned um oh, um Elena is listing some pages to follow. Yes.
1: Um, and all of those pages, I saw that a few minutes ago. And all of those pages, uh, the tutu teacher, um, Naomi Campbell of Read Like a Rock Star, Lanisha Tab of Apron Education, um, all those people are people that I follow, people that I've talked to personally, and they have great—I mean, really raw resources on teaching racism to like your personal kids if you have children—and also to your students. And they teach littles, like kindergarten, first grade, um, okay. and they have great—not just text, but also like instructional resources as well so yeah those are phenomenal phenomenal people okay. and
0: we'll have those in the show notes um, of the podcast episode um, and then we could probably even um, we could post them here probably in links under in the comments um, I don't know we'll have to figure out how to best get that get those out there um, so and then uh, we Bridget said seeker here I want to be more understanding of my very diverse high schoolers thank you for this you're welcome um, and f- and fight the fear that comes with, I will crash and burn and do it wrong with growth, still try. What do you think about that? Like when a teacher tries and says it wrong, I mean, I can't tell you how many people that I have, that I respect in the online world who have made some big mistakes in the last couple of days. I've gotten apology emails as being part of their online, you know, on their email list. I've seen apologies on, and you want to believe that what they did or what they said was they were doing the best they could with what they understood at that moment, but Mm -hmm. then they were corrected, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And I think I'm, I'm afraid of saying the the wrong thing, you know, and, and what do you, what do you say to, I'm I'm glad Angie brought that up because that is the thing where, you know, as someone who doesn't consider themselves racist, they don't want to say the wrong thing. So they don't say anything at all, but then they try to say something. And then it's again, like word vomit, like, oh, I didn't, you know, what do you, what do you
1: say? What do you say? So at this, I mean, here's the thing. Silence is complicit agreement. So saying something is better than saying nothing. However, or I'll say, and if you say the wrong thing, being vulnerable enough and dropping your pride enough that you can come back around and admit that, right? One of the like primary things about um, this conversation that I felt was like, yes, you know, I jumped on it is because the first thing that you did was not come to me and say, "Hey, can you have this conversation? Like can we talk about this? I, I want some of my followers to hear it?" You recognize and admitted your own ignorance. Um, I think that's, that's really the key thing. Saying something is better than saying nothing. And then following that up if you find out that something that you say is inaccurate or wrong or, or disrespectful in some way, even after I saw where Tiffany of, um, uh, is it Davion Innovations? Let me know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, but I met her through the self-care conferences was saying, okay. educate yourself and don't say anything if you're questioning. Um, I mean, I, I guess I agree and disagree with that in the sense that I think if you make your intentions known, I feel, you know, if you say something and then you find that you feel or that you are wrong, then being transparent enough to say listen i know on tuesday i said x and y i thought you know that that this was the appropriate thing to say but i have since been educated and i was wrong but when i said what i said it was because i wanted you to know that this is important or that this is where i stand on this particular issue mm-hmm. um, i mean i put things out there on social media You know, that had been inaccurate, or I've said things to my students that were inaccurate. And it's difficult because teachers are always sort of placed on this pedestal as being these, you know, keepers of all of the knowledge. And so then when we're wrong, it looks like, oh my gosh, like I I put things out there on social media with grammatical errors and all sorts of things. Right. Um, So it's about being able to come back around to that and say, okay, I was wrong. Mm -hmm. This was my intent in the beginning. But then also acknowledging the fact that you're willing to accept the critique and to uh, reframe your thinking and and elevate from there and iterate from there.
0: Mm -hmm. Such a great point. And then to so Meredith asked a question that I actually asked her yesterday. So Meredith Newland. We, we were talking back and forth yesterday because she did an Instagram live that I, that I watched. Yes. And I, I am going to tell you, and I told you this yesterday and I told Meredith, I said, I am learning daily how ignorant I am because I did not even know that these were words. She used the words white saviorism Mm -hmm. and I had heard virtue, virtue signaling before virtue signaling in, in many different ways, like with stickers on cars and, you know, things like that. Um, but white centering and when I watched her Instagram live, I immediately sent you a voice DM and I said, do you feel that this is what I'm doing? Because I had no intent of this, but this is making me worried that that's going to be what it looks like. Right. Um, so how do we, Meredith just asked a question. She said, how do we speak out without virtue signaling or whiteness centering? That's, that's another thing too, where it's like, you don't want to make it all about you, you right. know? Um, right. and that was something too, that I, um, on the podcast episode, I listened to today where, you know, it's almost like when you go to a funeral and, you know, people are just, they, they come to you and they just tell, you know, how bad I feel. I feel so bad. I'm, so sorry, I'm so sad. I can't, you know, that type of thing. How how do we avoid that? How do we have these conversations with and I think I already know the answer, but how do we have these conversations that need to be had or share our share our voice without virtue signaling? Like like I said, see, I'm telling you, word vomit. <laughs> so I, I mean, this is gonna sound maybe over oversimplified, but
1: you remove the you remove I. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think so often because we want to appear, or, or white teachers specifically. I mean, because we we all, I mean, have, have virtue signal, want to appear that like we're doing the right things and we're morally in the right. That we want to make sure that our kids know or that people know that we couldn't possibly be a part of, um, you know, the the issue that it is that we're talking about. But I think the first thing you do is is you remove I and you don't speak about your feelings on the issue unless that's the nature of the conversation or or you know a child specifically asks you or whatever and in terms of white centeredness uh, language is really important and the way that you use like we're talking about social media since I know that's a a vein that we're both really you know heavily invested in Mm -hmm. is how you elevate um and since we're specifically talking about black voices black voices on your platform right it's one thing to say i want to do this i feel this way uh you know this is it's one thing to inject your i almost feel like agenda and it's another thing to you know elevate our voices uh black voices um and, and do just that. I, I think, I mean, to me, the simple answer is you remove, I, because real realistically, it's not about your feelings. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's not about if you feel bad, or if you feel sympathy.
0: Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about, um, and forgive me if I'm saying this wrong, but white fragility. Did I say that correctly? Yes, you did. That was um, that. So, yeah, so
1: white fragility has always been a thing, but has also—I feel like there are certain terms that have become much more mainstream. I would say, especially within the last couple years. Sorry, I'm like trying to look through these comments. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, my understanding of it is—I don't. People say I'm so articulate, and of course. Um, I just think there are are so many ideas about like where this stems from and I think I think it has a lot to do with uh, or I know it has a lot to do with morality and wanting to feel and, and this is you know, and this certainly isn't, isn't a, a religious conversation, but I definitely think that there are those undertones there. But it has a lot to do with morality and white people not wanting to sit in or deal with the fact that um, with, with the decisions they've made, you know, behaviors they display, et cetera, that go against that. It's almost like this denial of the fact that you could in any way do anything, believe in anything, ascribe to anything that's morally corrupt. Because as soon as that happens, you know, that's when you get the white tears.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And yeah, but morality has a a huge part to do with it. And being here in the South, you see that a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, this is where I've lived my entire life. But you see, um, you know, a lot of white fragility and white people, just not wanting to sit in and deal with their own contributions to our racist society and acknowledging and accepting that those contributions haven't all been overt. Some of them have been covert. Some of them are because of implicit biases, ways that they were raised, ways that they were educated. And, um...
0: They just don't they don't want
1: to sit in that guilt, right? They don't want to sit in in the idea that they do have some culpability to what's happened Mm -hmm. and happening. And thus it becomes all about them and their responses to you know racism and you know the events
0: like the ones in the past couple weeks that have happened. So the reason I ask about that is because it was a, it was a term that I had not heard before, um, and I I wondered if it was something that could also be associated with bias. And I was reading. Um, have you ever heard of Joe Trust at Trust Leadership? Mm-mm. He posted a really great, or he tweeted something yesterday. I I I'm not on Twitter a ton, but somebody actually I think Gretchen sent this to me. Um, And he has a whole list of things. Definitely follow him at Trust, T-R-U-S-S, leadership. Um, And one thing that he said is quit kicking black kids out of class. Um, And one thing as a white middle class educator who grew up in a white middle class home with high, you know, Christian morals and, you know, and things like that, where you know we don't we don't cuss and we don't say these things to people and and we don't talk like that and and Mm -hmm. all of that. Mm -hmm. What I have experienced from working with teachers um that that maybe haven't had the realizations that I have had about my own biases um toward behavior and family culture and things like that is when you get called a bitch. That you just get out of my classroom, or oh my gosh, how da- how dare she call mm-hmm. me? I would never. If my mom, ma- if I would have called my mom a bitch. Oh my lord, you know. So there's that whole like, oh, how dare yeah. you? You know. Yeah. So tell us a little bit, of, and we're already at an hour. We could keep on going if you want. to yeah, y'all,
1: y'all let us know in the comments. Yeah, <laughs> because <laughs> we, I mean, we, you know, this is this is totally unscripted, and we're just. Um, Again, we're just, we're having a conversation. So y'all let us know how you're, how you're doing.
0: (laughs) So I'll pay attention to these comments, but I, I just, yeah, I feel like Um, those things aligned. Am I correct in in thinking that?
1: Okay. Absolutely. Um, we know that our, our black students are disproportionately disciplined, especially when it comes to exclusionary discipline. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and also in terms of behavior and I'm gonna. Directly to that because this is something that I acknowledge, and we'll also sort of get into um, a question that you asked me um, yesterday related to uh, Black co workers as well and Black educators. So, starting there, as a Black educator, my job is 10 times as difficult as any other educator, and we know that teaching is already difficult. And it's because, number one, we are disproportionately given the students with um, what, what are considered the most uh, uh, serious behavior and discipline issues, you know, because we can handle it. Mm-hmm. Or um, you know, there's also the idea of, you know, we're already operating under the black tax, which is the work twice as hard to prove yourself equal. There's also just the mask that you wear as a black professional, even um, where you know that you can't be too black in your workplace because of the perception of being angry or being ghetto or being you know just essentially too black so all of that is already in the foreground for me as a as a black teacher when it comes to my students and specifically uh, my black students and and even hispanic students um, tend to have similar like family and cultural values, I noticed that our, our cultural values are punished um, in, in disproportionate amounts, right? Here's the thing, your black students generally are going to be louder, um, you know, are going to use Ebonics. And I say that when, you know, we, we tell kids, oh, don't talk like that. Don't, don't use that, you know, when we sort of force them into code switching.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: code switching. I'm our, notes.
0: Yeah, no, and, and
1: I'll, I'll speak more to that if, if you'd like me to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think for white teachers specifically, being able to acknowledge that that is a part of our culture. If you were to go to, and I have a, a pretty small, um you know like nuclear family that i come from it was my mom my dad and my brother and i Um, but even if you go to our house now at some point during that visit we're all going to be hollering trying to talk over one another it's just how we are and how we operate Uh, but then when that comes into the classroom it's seen as disrespectful right when realistically That's just what we do. That's how we are. That's how we are with our families. Um, and it's not that we value loudness per se. It's just a function of how we operate within our families. We're trying to make a point and you won't stop talking. So I'm just going to talk over you. Whoever talks the loudest wins. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not a show of of respect or disrespect. It's it's just an MO. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I see a lot of that with white teachers and, and discipline and, um, you know, ultimately that discipline ends up coming down to a lack of understanding mm-hmm. or, and or a lack of acceptance of other cultural values, specifically black cultural values mm-hmm. um, and, and taking that as a personal affront. It ain't personal. It has nothing to do with you. This is just who I am. We say, oh, we celebrate who you are. We celebrate your individuality and your uniqueness. But that's not true. When you're correcting my double negatives or my Ebonics or you're kicking me out because I was loud or because I, you know, whatever. There is just a complete and utter lack of even wanting to gain the perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's so interesting. I'm sorry, didn't mean. No, you're me. good. You're good. I'm. I'm what I was going to say what's so interesting about what you're saying is that um, when I'm working with teachers and we're working on reflecting on your challenges and you know we're talking about you know if a, if a, they have um, poor behavior in their classroom and they get called names um, or whatnot and this can be this also can cross this can cross into you know understanding understanding students who are in poverty as well. You know, that I I always worked in a, a high poverty district um, in both of the districts that I worked in. And there are lines there that you just, you don't, you can't possibly understand and your bias takes over and you make decisions or you make assumptions based on that bias. Well, their parents are lazy. Their parents don't care. You know, right. I've even seen, um, you know, with teaching virtually with parent uh, teachers talking about how, you know, gosh. Why are parents being so disrespectful and emailing me at eleven o'clock at night? They, I cannot believe that they expect me to be there to answer that and to answer that email. Well, I don't think they expect you to be there. That's when they right. had the time right. to do that. So, right. um, so what you're saying is is so relevant to to the to my. <laughs> to, to me, you know, as, as a white teacher. Um, so what is it that, do you have any, um, you had said that you had a couple other things to talk about, but do you have any resources or anything out there that you, that you believe that we could get started with? Um, yeah. Um, ourselves. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And these are all texts that I have read. Um, some of them I haven't finished, but have read like the bulk of. Mm -hmm. Um, So the first thing, I mean, all of these books are pretty specific to education, um, specific to the education realm, but certainly will be helpful for anyone. And then one of them um, is not necessarily education related, but speaks specifically to the experience of a black man just operating here in the state. So the first is going to be Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, it's, it's pretty well known. Um, I mean, maybe that's just among the black community, but essentially is his uh, experience as a black man in America. Uh, pretty quick read. When I say quick, I mean, it's short, but uh, extremely provocative. Teacher Wars by Dana Goldstein, which is actually great just in terms of learning about the history of teaching and why it's, why it's so funny. messed up now. Um, but specifically in that text, chapters three, six, and seven speak specifically to black teachers in the educational setting um, and what impact that's had on our, our education mm-hmm. system. Sorry, my dog is like out here, not wanting me to be <laughs> um, Also, Dream Catchers by Gloria Ladson. I believe her, her name is hyphenated. It's Gloria Billings Ladson, um, but I just had jotted these down really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when it comes to talking about um, you know how black students tend to represent also our students who are in poverty right like those things are, are almost synonymous um, and then there was one more oh this is a classic why do all the black kids sit together in the cafeteria by beverly tatum
0: The reason I asked you about this and I had asked you, you know, about resources yesterday is because when it goes back to that bias and that, the, that white fragility um, where it's, it's all, how dare they, you know, they're so, I can't believe that they would call me that name or I can't believe that they wouldn't turn in their homework or I can't believe that they would, you know, do these things. It's all about me and my rules and, and my morals and my core value, you know, um, is that, well, if, if, if a student, any student would call you a name, if it got to that level, have you even tried to understand w- what the situation is or where, you know, I, why, right, they, know why about. were they so mad? You know, why were they so escalated? Did they come right. in, you know? Um, so these, these can not only help us to understand, you know, that we have to seek understanding before trying to be understood, yes. but, yeah. but educate yourself, right? right. Which I'm talking to myself here. Um, um,
1: I want to address this conver- this not conversation comment from Holly Thompson uh-huh. who talked about how her school uses the term code switching in the context of changing behavior from the classroom to recess to acting, you know, just talking in general about acting differently in different spaces and she says that she wants to know, or she says that in her background the term has always been uh, described in a racial context and do I feel like they're minimizing the gravity of the term if they use it in that way. Uh, My answer is no, I don't think you're minimizing it, but I think that, and maybe this is duplicitous in what I'm about to say here, but I do think that it lacks depth uh, in that context, right? Because it's, when we talk about acting differently, for me, when I teach code switching, it's more than about just, oh, well, We're loud on the playground, but we're quiet in class, or Mm -hmm. we run in the gym, but we don't run in our classroom. It has to do with language and the way that we are perceived according to our uh, uh, understanding of or our grasp of speaking the English language well. Again, I, I use all of that very loosely. So when I talk about code switching, what I talk about it, what I specifically speak to is and I live in like a rural area right and I'm in the south I don't know if those of you who are outside of the south or even you Amber I think we've actually already talked about this can hear that I'm you know here in South Carolina my husband makes fun of me because he says that apparently I, it's really strong if um you're from outside of this area but anyway so even then in the, in the rural community Um, You know, it's very common to use double negatives to drop the ends of gerunds, you know, INGs become IN apostrophes. Um, I'm trying to think other things, Uh, infinitives um, and also possessives um, change when you talk about ebonics. And so allowing students for me and to answer Holly's question, when I talk about code switching, I really specifically refer to language because really that's one of the top things that matter, and when you go into a white setting and you talk, that is primarily how they're judging you. I mean, obviously, skin color matters, but then also what comes out of your mouth, and it almost goes back to what I was talking about with being articulate, mm-hmm. right? Because, um, you know, realistically, like if you heard me with my with my mom's side of the family. Um, you might only understand every fourth word that we say because it's very blurred together, a lot of endings are dropped, possessives are extremely different, and so allowing your students to be that way, and I'll be honest, when I go into my classroom, and I tell my kids this, I actually do not code switch uh, all the way at work. I do a little, you know, a, a, a little bit of it, right, because some of it, I mean, it's just sort of ingrained in my idea of what professionalism is, mm-hmm. but I try to show up as much as me as possible. Mm -hmm. I don't want to put on a performance. And so I encourage my students in terms of code switching to that. It's okay in my classroom and that I'm fine with it, but understand that if somebody makes this comment or if somebody tries to insinuate that they don't feel like you're intelligent, that they're doing so because of, the way that you're speaking or the words that you're using. So again, Holly, do I feel like it's minimized? Not totally. I think, I just think you have to introduce the depth there because conceptually, I think that's great, especially when you're talking about young kids, I would say like under third grade. I think that's a great way to introduce the concept of code switching, but Mm -hmm. also being able to understand that really when we talk about it, it zeroes into how you're acting or how you're behaving, or how you're speaking in the context of society, and the fact that you will be judged according to that, or that you are judged according to that.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So so Holly said, thank you. Yep, my rural family talks like that too. This is so helpful, more defining, um, more depth, got it. Um, And I've experienced the same thing with my mom. So we live in northern Indiana, and when we go to southern Indiana, she (laughs) <laughs> she what is it code switching i mean she just she's louder she says words differently and then whenever we're home then she she talks like she right talks. <laughs> um, yes. yes yeah that was a great question holly um so i think i have i've exhausted my questions but i know you had some other things too that that you wanted to talk about? And um, so anything else that, that you wanted to share that we started to talk about yesterday that, I, that I'm leaving out? or um, um, So that was really just one thing. And then again, if you guys have
1: any questions, please yeah, keep them coming. Um, so specifically, just I know one of the things that we wanted to be really clear about in this conversation was what can white educators do to you know, further the cause, right? A lot of um, white people, which which has been great, have come out and, you know, are standing with us, but are like, okay, what now? So, yes. Two things in that. The first thing is uh, understanding that we cannot talk about race separately from politics because racism wasn't just a social construct. It was a political construct. It was intended to keep or to perpetuate and to maintain white power. You have to understand that in order to understand why. For us, it's not just a heart love thing. It is also a political thing because it was created to be so. Right. Um, and so when we talk about being transformative and what can I do and how you can
0: does does he want me to be successful or no? I, I think I <laughs> I don't know. Um, Aaron
1: <laughs> <And> Yeah, teaching <laughs> teaching totally political. Um and so yeah, it, it's one of those things yes. where you know when it comes to the leaders. Mm -hmm. that we elect. It is super important because what we need and what we require is a leadership who prioritizes us and who prioritizes our care. Black people are, I mean, and you can, you know, find this in in a lot of spaces, are, you know, vote disproportionately Democratic. And I know that there's a lot of talk about, you know, Democrats and, and socialism, et cetera let's remove the lens of socialism. It's about being taken care of. Please, yes. I I don't think that we would, you know, th- this whole idea of like, oh my gosh, you know, because the, the whole idea of socialism where, you know, everybody takes care of everybody else is, you know, everybody feels different ways about it. Here's the thing though. In my opinion, it would be less of a conversation if we were already taking care of all of our people, which we've never done. Right. So, You know, when we talk about and when people are so adamantly up in arms about, you know, us not becoming socialists. Okay, then. So then what there need to be are steps and and legislation and leadership that prioritizes our lives. And when we talk about and and I've seen this a ton on, on Facebook, Black Lives Matter, it's not because other lives don't, it's because we have never ever been prioritized outside of the context of what we can provide so entertainment athletics and then when we talked transatlantic slave trade it was some of those same thing and then labor mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you know it's i, I get it because people are like oh those are separate issues but also here's the thing mm-hmm. our current president hasn't directly uh, endorsed the Black Lives Matter movement, nor has he spoken candidly, openly, outwardly, directly, or any of that in relation to the prioritization of, and I say the Black agenda, it's really, it really should be all of our agendas. But we say the Black agenda because we seem to be the only people that care about us. So when you, um, you know, see and hear, uh, you know, our, our political views and our, politi- our political persuasions, actually as a culture, as a diet, like black people are actually really conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just in, you know, when we talk about, you know, lots of, of different other things, but politically we tend to be more liberal um, and we tend to vote more Democrat because that is the side that we feel like is thinking about us. Right. And I also feel like, you know, when we talk about having equal treatment, we've also got to look at equality and equity because, okay, so when that treatment does come, understanding that like our students, we provide our, our students with disabilities with IEPs and 504s to level the playing field, right? Every student doesn't get an IEP because right. every student doesn't start out with, you know, we consider, um, you know, disabilities, like disadvantages, you know, academic disadvantages. So applying that same concept to us. So understanding the disadvantage, the centuries-long disadvantage that we have, and understanding that, yes, we will need some some government help, I, I think just as an entity, to level the playing field. You know, I know that there are no perfect answers, but just sort of giving, shedding some light on how race and politics really are directly linked so when it comes to activism voting is a huge part of that and i don't think that we can talk about what can i do without
0: that um you know can i chime in here really quickly yeah you and i started touching on this i think this was about the time where we were like we need to stop because we've got to talk about tomorrow. <laughs> and um, one thing I said to you is it's, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is it easier and is it even set up this way where when Trump is, when, when Trump is talking, I, we just shut it off. We just, just ignore. And I know that that's been a lot of people's just ignore him. Like even, you know, on the news, people have said, we just, we're ignoring him. We're, this is what we're, you know, so ignorance. And this is where I said yesterday, ignorance has just become bliss, where if mm-hmm. we just ignore it, then we don't have to deal with, with his ignorance. But right. then again, we, we remain silent and say we're powerless. Like we can't change. Our vote doesn't even count, you know? then we, we start getting into that rabbit hole of, well, I can't change the political system. Right. Right. And try.
1: Right. And we know that that's not true because there were almost a hundred million people that didn't vote in the last, in in the last election. And, you know, I mean, my, my grandpa actually didn't register to vote until he was in his seventies because he felt that way. He felt that his vote didn't matter. Mm -hmm. Um, and that his voice didn't, matter but we've seen that i mean it does we we saw what happened in 2008 right which was a, a landmark year not just because we elected a black president but because of the turnout um and the amount of people that were mobilized to vote for us for the black community specifically it wasn't just oh look you know how far america has come it was we felt that we had someone he hasn't been the only one but i speak to him because he was the first president who was coming from a similar place in terms of our experience. Mm -hmm. And so because we knew that he understood what it meant to be Black in America, that our agenda would be prioritized. And that is what we don't feel now. And that's what people have to understand. And you mentioned this yesterday, when we talk about the boiling over of emotions, this isn't just George Floyd was killed. Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor. It wasn't just, you know, uh, Trayvon Martin. We c- we could go on and
0: on with names. Right.
1: It wasn't just these events happen and they're unfair. They're not right. They're unjust. It has been a build up. You know, when we starting with the transatlantic slave trade, moving through Jim Crow, um, you know, even up to what now we sort of refer to as new Jim Crow. This. This is a an unrest that we constantly walk around with. And I believe it's James Baldwin, which that's another uh a black writer, prolific black black writer. Um James Baldwin is the author of I Am Not Your Negro. Um, but anyway, prolific black black writer who has said, I, I believe it was him that said um something along the lines of to be black in America is to be in a constant state of, you know rage, essentially, you know, you just always have this, this inner turmoil, because you feel that you are an island unto yourself, and that at the highest levels, no one has your interest at heart. And I think it's, it's a whole, and somebody messaged me yesterday and said, while she hadn't been actively racist, she just always in her mind was like, Oh, well, somebody's taking care of it, like, somebody's doing
0: something about it. And that brings up another point, too, is this idea of white privilege where we don't even know we're so in it that we have no idea that and that it is easier than to be ignorant and to ignore because everything's fine in my neighborhood right we're all getting along fine and we don't you know and i again i'll go back to i I cannot recommend this podcast episode enough. If you are white and watching this, you have to you have or you just have to listen to it. Shanta Grant um how not to be racist I think was the name of the episode. But um when you don't have to when you don't have to worry about um going certain places or you don't have to worry about um how people are going to judge you or, you know, in, in certain situations, I'm definitely not going to say it the way that she said it. Um, but it's just like, wow, like you never, you never consider the privilege that you have Mm -hmm. until you hear how privileged we are, you know, um, just by the color of our skin. So, I mean, Can you speak? Do you feel like we've already said there uh, said what needs to be said about that, or is there anything else that you can bring into the conversation about what we can do, you know, besides educating ourselves and reading and listening, um, that we can do to 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 stop stop the bliss, I guess. (laughs) Um,
1: Absolutely. Um, I mean, I I think just just as far as the summary goes, we've talked about listening, we've talked about the literature. Um, We've talked we briefly touched on investing in what I call instant PD, which is, you know, following those educators who are either who are black voices or who are elevating black voices. And it's not just about because I also want to make very clear that, you know, I'm not posting, you know, anti-racist stuff, you know, anti-racist content constantly but in that I am and we are black people living the black experience. And so everything we share, even when it seems benign is through the lens of the black experience.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, And so there's that. And then also just, um, I think with this, when when I think about this conversation, not tiptoeing around hard conversations and sitting in the discomfort, whether that's because you recognize your contributions or because something else about um, the hard conversations makes you uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really at the top of the of the priority list is seeking perspective, but understanding that that perspective may ruffle your feathers and may upset you a little bit because you understand that you're complicit in that. But the seeking of the perspective and then being willing to sit in that and recognize. You know, being able to reflect and say, okay, I know that I've done, like you've said in this conversation, I know that I've done X, I know that I've done Y, because what happens is that transforms your behavior going forward, and it also transforms the way that you're going to communicate with other people, Mm -hmm. and my hope is that walking away from this conversation, you and anyone that's watched or is listening, is going to be able to go out you know, whether it's among friends, family, students, whatever, and speak based on having, you know, seen this through the lens of our conversation and of someone who has, you know, lived um, the the Black experience.
0: Mm-hmm. And just watching and reading isn't enough. Right. It's, it's the action that, that you take that makes the biggest difference. Um, and, and, and the and the willingness
1: to, Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and, and the willingness to stand, even if it means on your own, you know, I've had people message me saying that, you know, there were family members that they um, were beginning to know in a different light, uh, that was really surprising uh, to them as far as, as far as their beliefs and their sort of closet racist views, mm-hmm. uh, And so, yeah, and and I think that's hard, right? And we talk about, and I think it's easy for us to tell our kids and for white people to tell their kids, you know, stand Mm -hmm. up for for what you believe in, stand up for what's right, even if you're standing by yourself. But does that really happen? And then do we really do that also? Are we willing to stand alone apart from even the people that we love and care about and who love and care about us in the name of uh, justice?
0: I have said myself um, to my daughters in certain familiar family family situations don't engage don't engage because the argument that ensues um is not worth it right is that a form of silence am i silencing My children, when they're standing up for what they believe in politically, or when they hear somebody that they love say things that they know they disagree with, do you see what I'm saying here? Yeah, I absolutely know what you're saying. And see, here's the thing, and I'm going to give this disclaimer,
1: because I always feel like I give this disclaimer to people that I talk to who have kids, because I'm not a parent. Um. But I would say yes, and and here would be, you know, maybe my recommendation, because to engage doesn't necessarily mean that an argument has to ensue, Um, and if you're, if, I would say, if your daughters are at a place where they feel passionate, passionately enough about something to, um, to speak up or speak out about it, that they be able to do that. And then if there's, you know, and and I think it depends too, like if you, you know, if, if that person is willing to listen or somebody who is just going to engage in an argument, but I think that it says something for them to be able to say their piece, to say what it is that they believe, because at the very least, what they've done is created the awareness. Mm -hmm. And at some point in the future, I mean, this may, may not happen, but at some point in the future, that person or those people may eventually come back around because they know that where so-and-so stands or what it is that so-and-so believes. So yes, I think it's, it's futile to engage in an argument with someone who's not even willing to listen. Mm -hmm. But I think that it's very powerful for your daughters to be able to speak up, speak out and then that be that.
0: I totally agree with you. And it's interesting, because as you're saying this, I'm like, yeah, we've tried. We've tried and not, and then tried not for it to be end up an argument, but it it does. But Mm -hmm. you saying that, though, makes me feel like I just, you know, we need to teach our girls, our daughters to stand up for what they believe in. But then leave it at that. If someone wants to argue and get, you know, get nasty or, you know, turn it into something big. Right.
1: right. Because a fire needs fuel to continue. And at a certain point, while that other, you know, that other party, you know, may be able to spout whatever they're going to spout, eventually they're going to run out. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you don't put kindling on the fire, eventually it's, it's, it's done. Right. Um, And I I know that that's often easier said than done, because generally what those people do is then, you know, they they end up fueling the fire themselves and getting you pulled in. But if you're committed about something, I think, um, you know, you stand in that, you express that, Mm -hmm. and then you leave it but then also recognizing the consequences of that as well. And right. knowing that like this is a situation where I've seen friends say, I've, you know, I've lost friends, I've, I've deleted friends, I've dismissed friends, I've been excluded from this or that circle. So understanding that that does come with consequences. But in my mind, those consequences are uh, minimal compared to you know, the lives that are lost because we don't have more voices of privilege that are
0: speaking up and out against the injustices. Right. I totally, totally agree. Um, somebody asked, can you repeat the name of the podcast? So I was, I apologize. I was here. I was taking a screenshot. I was thinking I could drop the image on the con um, in the comments. Um, so her name is Shunta Grant and she has the business life and joy podcast. So here, I'm sorry. My light is making it hard to see, but so it's episode uh, 161. And, um, I actually sent it to my daughter on her way. She was actually coincidentally on her way to vote today for her first time as an 18 year old. And I said, you have to listen to this. Like it's required listening. <laughs> I, said, We're I love talk- that. I love that. And I think that's so important. Oh my gosh. Yes, 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 yes. And she came uh, home and she said, mom, that, that I'm so thank you for sharing that with me. And um, I listened to it this morning, and I had to stop putting on my makeup because I was just crying while I was listening to it. And I'm thinking, this is the, this is the perspective, you know, this conversation that we're having. Listening to these things, it chain it's changing my brain as I'm listening to it. It's just maybe opening my mind just right. to, again. But you're all, but you, but it's because you also recognize after you
1: heard some things that whoa, so some of this wasn't. Right. You know, you had that wherewithal. Right. Um, But also, I think it just goes to show the number of Mm -hmm. people, the number of white people specifically who, again, it's not, you know, they were not racist, but they weren't anti-racist and Mm -hmm. didn't recognize that. Um, Which is, again, another reason I agreed to have this conversation. I see a question here about um, messages to share, Um, with parents to promote cultural competency and a complete view of race, or do you focus solely teaching the students? Um, Yeah. So actually Lanisha Tab of um, apron education and read like a Rockstar's Naomi Campbell created a resource. I want to say it's something like the, the white parents guide to racism or something like that. And it is actually direct materials that they can use that you can use with your kids. Um, And it was actually, I mean, for for kids of all ages, but I think it's specifically tailored to littles. And on uh, Lanisha's, on uh, Apron Education's Instagram, she actually has a screenshot of some feedback that a white parent gave her who said, you know, I really thought that, I had taught my son, you know, my kids to just love everyone and accept everyone. I really didn't think this was a thing for us. And through that resource, they actually discovered that they had already ingrained a lot of implicit biases in him that they had no idea. Right. Um, had. So, um, I mean, they create great resources as far as that. As far as that. And I think just,
0: um, I think exposure is, is really a big thing as far as parents and, and kids. Well, that's what I was going to say too. And Going back to our, our question about how do you respectfully say something without engaging in an argument um, is that if you take the time to educate yourself and listen and read, now I can say, you know what? There's this excellent episode um, on the Life and Joy podcast by Shunta Grant. I, I'm going to send you a link. Yes. And then, right. And then you don't even have to explain. You don't even have to. like. You don't even have to explain. You can... You
1: know, th- this is what I believe, but also I'm going to recommend this to you because, because you know what it did for you. You know, you know what following certain accounts did for you or, or hearing certain perspectives did for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly that can be the case for others. I think that's so important. And when you're educated, I think you tend to, this is just my, my opinion, I think the arguments take a very different tent because you have that level of knowledge. Mm -hmm. A lot of times where some arguments spurn from are people who maybe aren't as educated, Mm -hmm. but who are insecure about it and are desperate to have a right opinion or a right standing uh, despite that. Mm -hmm. So there's not even an idea, you know, an interest in looking for facts. It's all about finding information information that supports the way that I feel, because really it reflects some other deeper insecurity. Right. So mm-hmm. I think that education, yeah, is super powerful. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: I think, okay. Just making sure we didn't miss anything. Yeah, absolutely. I've been trying to keep up too, but I have been terrible. <laughs> no, it's good. Um, it's fine. We, um, all right. So will you do me a favor? And after this live is over, will you um, either take a picture and just text it to me, the the list that you have of the resources yes. Um,
1: yes,
0: and then, or e- email them to me if you want. Um, Cause I want to make sure that those go in the show notes, that they're easily yes. accessible. Yes. Absolutely. Um, And because, and I want them too. um, and I actually got a really great resource from Meredith yesterday. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Melissa Griffith. Um, Mm -hmm. she put together a resource guide that she, of, of resources that she pulled together to help educate herself as a white woman. Um, and so I've actually started going through that as well. I want to put that on there. Um, but, um, if, if, do we do is there anything else that, that I skipped? Um, as far as what I we talked covered, about, I think we covered a, a
1: lot of ground. Um, and I'm so grateful that you were so open to having this conversation and for uh, the people in the comments who were engaging with us and who have been watching along with us as well. I really, I'm just a person that believes that. Um, you can accomplish a lot, especially in the early stages, with dialogue like this. And my my hope is that, and I think yours is too, Amber, is that our conversation will spark additional conversations that lead to, you know, those shifts in perspective. And and that I'm just really hoping that this um, sort of movement to devour uh, knowledge and to devour perspective continues, and that we see true activism not just posting not just us talking to our friends about it not just us saying what we're going to do about it but that we truly see what people say that they stand for right emotion in the coming months because i mean right now we're still really in the heat of the raw emotions and my hope is that once the, you know, uh, the, the emotion of the moment passes mm-hmm. that we will still have the same fervor that white people who are speaking out for the first time will still have that the same level of, of passion
0: and energy
1: devoted to our cause going forward.
0: That's my hope too. And I think, you know, one thing that I think that we can do also is always be modeling um, and modeling the hard conversations and modeling, you know, and even as parents and teachers modeling how to, how to come, you know, from a vulnerable and empathetic and, and truly seeking place and just say, I I don't know, so so help me and and how can I you know how can we do better and be better? Um, and that's that's what I really hoped you know, to come from this conversation. Um, with that being said, this episode, this is going to be um, the last podcast episode. I had a whole other thing planned that was not near as important as as publishing this conversation. Um, and after next week's episode, I had planned, I had already planned on reposting old episodes of the podcast from season three, um, but I'm not going to. Um, I am going to leave that space where people would have been listening and learning about burned in about what burned in is. Um, I want people to take that time to educate themselves instead, listening to one of these books rather than listening to this, you know, my podcast episode or listening to Shanta Grant or one of the many other podcasters that can help us to learn and do better. So, um, over the summer, when I would be posting a new podcast episode, um, I plan on posting rather to you know my social media feed, sending to my email, some sort of resource that we that we can do better by reading, listening, watching, something. So, um, you've given us a plethora of resources to start with today, Alexis, and there are so many more out there. Um, and if any of you watching now or listening to this as a podcast episode, send them my way, um, at support at burn Um, I want, I genuinely want to do better, um, as an educator. So. And as a mom and as a human being, I mean, for God's sake. So, um, <laughs> so, um, thank you so, so much from the bottom of my heart for, for spending almost two hours with, with me and these lovely people who have joined us today. Um, so tell everybody again, if they don't know you, um, if they've, if they've not met you before, um, how they can find you and, and engage with you as well.
1: Absolutely. Um, So I am the Afro educator on all platforms. Um, Afro educator is one word. It is all smushed together. So if you put a space, you will not find me. Um, But I'm the Afro educator on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, which, you know, is my primary platform, but then also on Facebook. I am the Afro educator as well. And I post all things teacher wellness. Um, But in that, just, you know, my experience as a, as a black educator, um, and my thoughts on on a variety of things in general. So um, yeah, my, my hope is just that I can, you know, be a, a, a purveyor of perspective and, um, you know, really help educators specifically live their best lives. And I think part of that is is being able to offer, you know, perspectives on what it's, what it is to be a teacher and what it means to be well. Uh, but I think, this is is certainly a part of that
0: mm-hmm. and um hopefully we'll hear color your perspective come out of the woodwork with
1: yeah yeah something. you know we'll we'll see there there may there may be uh you know a little, little something in the future with some with some podcasting who knows
0: <laughs> Now you said it you said it yesterday. (laughs) I know, right? And I I have all these people that can can keep me accountable now. (laughs) Are you, can I share what happened yesterday? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I asked Alexis what we should call this conversation. And she said, let me, let me think about it a little bit. And she came back with Color Your Perspective. And the second I saw it, I was like, that girl just named her damn podcast. (laughs) And I told her, so I've I've
1: had several. Oh no! So people uh, come to me and say, and "That like you should do a podcast." And I'm like, "I don't have anything to talk about." And so when
0: she said that, it I was like, "Oh, dang it! Here we go!" <laughs> oh my gosh, that would be incredible. And I mean, every everything that we talked about today could be put into multiple podcast episodes. So okay. you just also laid out all of your content, so there's no excuse. <laughs>
1: Oh my goodness. And then you said it right in front of all these people. So now
0: (laughs) this expectation. (laughs) All right. Well, we're gonna go ahead and sign off then. Thank you so much for joining us for all of you who stuck around for this entire uh, conversation. And for those of you listening, we just we so appreciate you being here and educating yourself and sharing your thoughts and perspectives and questions. They are all valuable, they're all valid, and they are all heard. So Thank you again so much. And uh, we'll see you on the gram and on the podcast and and out in the world. So do better, be better, stay safe. See you later.
1: Take care, y'all.